Well, I would say, the outset of this message, that watching movies is a pretty dangerous way of doing theology. Okay? Of understanding who God is and our necessary response to him. Why do, why do I say that? Why do I say that watching movies is a dangerous way of doing theology? Well, it's really simple, okay? It's really simple. God didn't give us a movie. He gave us a book. I told you it was simple. God didn't give us a movie. He gave us a book. That's why when Stephen walked up here, we didn't watch a video clip. Okay? We read the Word of God. The Word of God. However, the fact that when it comes to doing theology, understanding who God is, how we must respond to him. We don't look to a movie to answer the most important questions in life. That doesn't mean that a movie can't help us recognize important questions in the first place. Okay? A good movie knows how to ask provoking questions. Knows how to ask those questions. It knows how to help us wrestle with some of those questions. And and a question, if it's a good movie, you're wise, that will send you running to scripture for the answer, okay? So movies can ask and pose really good questions, but if we're wise, we'll go running to scripture for the answer, okay? That's my contention, and I think a good question of just that sort is posed in the midst of an agonizing battle in a movie called The Two Towers, in the Lord of the Rings film series. In the midst of this agonizing battle, Frodo says, I can't do this, Sam. I can't do this. Sam, I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. Frodo, what are we holding on to, Sam? That's the question. What would you say? 
What are you holding on to that's keeping you going in the midst of an evil world? What do you, what do you cling to when it seems like darkness is going to swallow you alive? When, when everywhere you look, every part of your life, you see something broken or wrong or not the way it should be. What are we holding on to, Sam? That is a brilliant question. <laughs> and friends, the Bible gives us an answer to that question. Gives, gives an answer to Frodo. Gives an answer to you. And you know what? It doesn't give you the answer just once. And nor does it give us the answer twice. It gives us the answer over and over and over again. Why? Because we forget what the answer is over and over and over again. It says it over and over and over and over again because we forget what it is over and over and over and over again. And I'd argue it's this. In the end, Jesus wins. Okay? In the end, Jesus wins, and if you're found in Christ, then you win too. That's it. In the end, Jesus wins. And if you're found in Christ, then you win too. That, friends, is why Daniel 7 is in the Bible. It's why it's in the Bible, okay? To, to read this chapter is like, like receiving a new set of glasses. You know, I've got friends that when their eyes go bad and they've got old glasses, it's bad. Like, really bad. They can't see what they need to see, okay? Daniel 7 is like getting a new set of glasses. If you put this chapter on like glasses, it will show you the one thing that we have to hold on to. In the end, Jesus wins. That's what you have to hold on to if you're going to persevere in, in following Christ. God tells us in this chapter, the end of the story so that we won't lose heart in the middle. That's the way it works. Daniel 7, he tells us the end of the story so that we won't lose heart in the middle, okay? And Daniel spends a lot of time in both this chapter and the entire rest of this book talking about the future, talking about the end of the world in particular, and if you've been here for a number of weeks as we've preached through Daniel 1 to 6, I hope you noticed that when Stephen started reading this morning, something got a little different. Okay, there's a shift. Right, if the first six chapters are mainly a narrative, okay, the, the last portion of the book, 7 to 12, is a new style called apocalyptic or end times writing. Okay, now, because all sorts of people have all sorts of ideas about how to understand Daniel 7 to 12, I'm gonna linger a little bit this morning and just lay out some guidelines, okay? Everything I'm about to say is designed to serve us from now to the point where we are done with this book, okay? First, guidelines for reading end times stuff in the Bible, okay? First, Daniel 7 to 12, or any other apocalyptic part of the Bible, 
is just as inspired by God as every other part of the Bible. Okay? We need to remember that. Just as inspired by God. What does that mean? That means we don't approach scriptures like this reluctantly with an expectation of confusion. Okay? We approach them confidently with an expectation of clarity. Why? Because it's inspired by God. God's gonna use it to strengthen our faith. I I love how Daniel Block says this. The intention of apocalyptic is not, notice, not to chart out God's plan for the future so future generations may draw up calendars. Amen. Amen. But to assure the present generation that, perhaps contrary to appearance, God is still on the throne and the future is firmly in his hands. All right, we need to read these chapters with confidence. That's guardrail one. Guardrail two. Second, we need to read them in context. Okay, we read them with confidence. We read them in context, no less than we would any other part of the Bible, all right? Daniel 7 to 12, where he talks about the end times a lot, is not an awkward appendix on the end of an otherwise wonderful book. Okay, it's a core part of the entire book, all right? So, so I wanna show you how the structure of this entire book works. If we could put up this slide. Do we have the structure one? If not, I'll talk through this. Okay, well, I'm gonna talk through it, and if we, if we have it, just go ahead and stick it up there, okay? All right, here's how Daniel, the entire book is structured. All right, chapter one is all about Daniel going into exile, okay? Chapter two is all about, there we go, excellent, this is gonna help me, testing my memory. Chapter two is all about Nebuchadnezzar's vision, statue representing four kingdoms, okay? Daniel three is about deliverance from the fiery furnace, Daniel 4 is where Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. Daniel 5, Belshazzar is humbled. Daniel 6, deliverance from the lion's den. Daniel 7 through 9, Daniel's visions of four kingdoms. And Daniel 10 through 12, Daniel's vision of the end of exile. Okay, leave this up here for a second. Church, here's what I want you to see. I don't always go through detail like this, but I think this is really important, okay? There's a pattern here. What's the pattern? When God talks about the future at the beginning of the book and the end of the book, it is designed to have two effects in the middle of the book. The intended effect of the entire book of Daniel is found in the middle. What is that, Matthew? Two things. In light of the future that God has ordained, two responses. We must be humble before him, and we have to trust him to deliver us. We need to be humble before him. We need to trust him to deliver us, okay? That is the point of all that is in this book that speaks to the future. It's not about building a calendar. The divinely intended effect is that we would be humble before God, like the two kings ended up, 
and that we would trust God to deliver us both in the present and the future. That's the point, okay? Let's remember that. We need to read these chapters in context. Lastly, third guardrail, we need to read them on their own terms. Okay, so you should read these chapters. We should be preaching these chapters with confidence, in context, and on their own terms. Well, what do I mean by that, okay? Well, to quote Ian Duguid, listen, we instinctively know that a sentence that begins, the stars will fall from heaven, the sun will cease its shining, and the moon will drip blood, will not end, and the rest of the country will be partly cloudy with scattered showers. (laughs) Why do we know that? Why do we know that? Well, because we perceive a mismatch between the two genres, okay? The one is apocalyptic and the other is a weather forecast. What's the point? The way that apocalyptic literature speaks to us is different, it communicates in a different way than the way a weather forecast communicates to us. So in Daniel 7, much of the meaning of these verses is communicated through symbols. It's communicated through symbols. Now let me say a thing about symbols. Symbolic writing is not unclear writing. It's not. Symbolic writing is not unclear writing, it just communicates in a different way. Okay, that means we're not free to read into these symbols whatever meaning we like. That is so important. Symbolic writing is not unclear writing. We read it with confidence, we read it with context, we read it on its own terms, and therefore we are not free to read into the symbols whatever meaning we like. Okay, we have to do the hard work of understanding them in the context of Daniel and the rest of the Bible. So important. Okay, now, let me acknowledge this, and we'll do this every sermon for the next couple of weeks, but let me acknowledge it today, that there are plenty of God-fearing preachers, including some serious giants in church history, that differ over the best way to interpret details in this chapter, okay? But, you knew that was coming, I would argue the big picture could not be more clear. The picture couldn't be more clear, and for the sake of not missing the forest for the trees, I'm not going to f- answer your question about every detail. I'm happy to follow up with you throughout the week on every detail if you like. I'm going to lay out what I believe is the best interpretation and try to help us stay focused on the big picture. And here's why, church. I'm convinced that you don't have to be a scholar with some Latin and letters after your name to understand the Bible. You don't. You don't. There, there are things in here that are not easy to understand. You know, I, I love how Peter says about the Apostle Paul that there are things in his writing that, that Peter found were hard to understand. It's like, oh God, thank you. That's comforting. But, but yet, ultimately, if we're willing to work hard, stay humble, read the Bible on its own terms, it's clear. And most importantly, church, it's comforting. 
It's comforting. The, the point of the last few chapters of Daniel is not to introduce speculation and confusion into your mind. It's to bring confidence, clarity, and comfort as you think about the future. That's the goal, okay? That's the goal. In the end, Jesus wins. And if you're found in Christ, you win too. That's what we have to hold on to. And I believe there are at least four reasons in Daniel chapter 7 why that's the case. Jesus wins. If you're found in Christ, you win too. Four reasons. And I tried, I think, admirably to fit them all into one sermon. And I failed. (laughs) Because I knew that I wanted to give these guardrails and we're not going to have time to get through all this. And this is one of the most important chapters in the entire book of Daniel. It shows up all over the New Testament. So, this is going to be one sermon in two parts. You're welcome. All right? That was just for King's kids. One sermon in two parts, okay? This Sunday, next Sunday. But the big idea is the same both weeks. Hear that. In the end, Jesus wins. And if you're found in Christ, you win too. One big idea, two sermons. All right? So I'm going to give two points this week, two the next week. Here we go. Point number one. Why is that the case? First thing we see in Daniel, chapter 7. Every kingdom in this world, every, every, every single kingdom in this world is subject to the sovereign authority of God. Every kingdom in this world is subject to the sovereign authority of God. Okay, Daniel 7 opens with a vision that God gives him during the reign of Belshazzar. Belshazzar was the last Babylonian king. And in his dream, he sees four great beasts come out of the sea one by one. You know, it helps to remember here that, that throughout the Bible, the sea is a symbol of chaos, of disorder, of evil, especially the nations opposed to God and his people. So Daniel tells us in verse 17 of chapter 7 that the beasts coming out of the sea, they represent four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But in Daniel 7 verse 23, he refers to the fourth beast as the fourth kingdom, which tells us that these beasts, these symbols of beasts, combine king and kingdom into one image. One image, and because there's four of them, that Daniel's vision in chapter 7 has to be read in light of Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2. Why do I say that? Because in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of four kingdoms. In chapter seven, God gives Daniel another vision of four kings or four kingdoms. We have to read them in light of one another. That's the context point, okay? So let's let's look at these beasts, these kings and kingdoms. All right, the first beast. First beast is like a lion, like a lion, and has the wings of an eagle. Translation, it rules the earth, rules the skies. It's characterized by strength and majesty, and and all the evidence points to the kingdom of Babylon, right? Where the, the Jewish people, Daniel, were in exile when he received this vision. Why do I say that? Well, because in both Ezekiel and Jeremiah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is described by the prophets as a lion and as an eagle, And this is amazing. Archaeologists in the ruins of the Babylonian culture have actually discovered a statue 
of a winged lion with the head of a man. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing, okay? So we've got scripture pointing to that, archaeology pointing to that, and Daniel, top it off, explicitly identifies Babylon as the first of the four kingdoms when he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two. Okay, that's the first beast. Symbolizes the kingdom of Babylon. Now the fact that Daniel sees the winged lion transformed into a man, in Daniel 7 verse 4, that points back to Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar is humbled, if you remember this, and made to live with the beast of the field. Because he was proud. Daniel 4 says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. Notice that. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. What's that a picture of? The mind of a man being given to the beast. Okay? Or to generalize it, I would say, to be truly human is to live in submission to our Creator. If you refuse to worship Him, like Nebuchadnezzar did, tried to, what happens? You lose your humanity. You become like a beast. So, so that giving the lion the mind of a man in Daniel 7.5, that's a picture of redemption, of God restoring His image in the heart of the pagan king. Or, or as the psalmist says in Psalm 49, This is very helpful. Man in his pomp, his pride, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. If if you want to think of redemption symbolically, what God's doing in our hearts through Christ, it's about turning beast into men. Beast into men. That's the first beast, the first kingdom, Babylon. Now what about this second king or kingdom? Well, Daniel says it's like a wild bear. Less majestic than the lion, but still possessing tremendous strength. Now, let's be very clear. He is not speaking of a teddy bear. (laughs) He's not. He's not talking about what you woke up with this morning, okay? The Syrian brown bear inhabiting the region where Daniel lived in Babylon easily weighed well over 500 pounds. Okay, so it's a serious bear, (laughs) Okay, and he sees it on the heels of finishing one meal and looking for another. And in Daniel 8, he tells us that the second kingdom, second beast, the second kingdom, is Medo-Persia, the empire that conquered Babylon. Remember that party Belshazzar threw where he bit the dust because he was proud? That was Medo-Persia that took over. They conquered in Daniel chapter five. And the fact that one side of the bear is higher than the other may reflect the superiority of the Persians over the Medes, and the three ribs likely represent the three nations that the Medo-Persian Empire conquered, Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt, okay? Second king or kingdom. The third king or kingdom is like a leopard with four wings and four heads, which we know from Daniel 8 is the king of Greece. Okay? Now think about this. The speed of the leopard and the fact that it has twice the usual number of wings, what does that suggest? Really, really fast takeover. Okay, that that strongly points, 
as I see it, to Alexander the Great, who invaded Asia Minor in 334 BC, which, by the way, was some 200 years after Daniel got this vision. We'll come back to that. Alexander, in 10 years, conquered practically the entire known world in all four directions. Now, why am I taking time to go through all these details? More importantly, why is Daniel recording all these details for us, okay? Here's why, church. God's doing something extraordinary for his people through Daniel. He's calling his shot. Or play basketball, some show off, it's like, in, you know, shoots it, and he's like, I'm the best. You know, he, he's calling his shot. He's saying, this is what's going to happen in advance to the exiles and Babylon. It's like God saying, listen, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in world history. By the way, I'm going to tell you what's happening in world history for the next couple hundred years, so that when it occurs exactly like I promised, you'll know that none of it is an accident. What does that prove? That that proves to Israel in exile, suffering under pagan authorities, that everything in their life right now is happening according to the sovereign plan of God. Translation, Israel, King's Way, I am in complete control of the future. I know exactly what is happening, and therefore, you can trust me with every detail of your life. That's the point. I wonder if you noticed that all the beasts Daniel's seen thus far have something in common. I hope you noticed this. In all their glory, all, all their strength, all their ferocity, Daniel makes very clear that they remain subject to a greater authority. Wait, where do we see this? Where do we see this? Well, the first beast has its wings plucked off. It's lifted from the ground and made to stand. The bear, glimpsed in the act of devouring other beasts, it's only doing what it was told. You notice that? Arise, devour much flesh. And the third beast, the leopard, has dominion what? Earned by it? Acquired by it? Taken by it? No given to it. Given to it. Who, who is doing all that, church? Who's, who's raising them up and putting them down? Who is ordaining and sovereignly controlling the actions of some of the greatest world empires that the earth has ever known? The Lord is. The Lord is. Psalm 47. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham for the shields of the earth belong to God. They belong to God. He is highly exalted. That's comforting if you're living under this kind of oppression. It's comforting. Okay, now, what's up with this fourth beast? Well, the fourth and most dreadful beast of all is not an exception to what I've just been arguing, okay? Though the description is utterly terrifying. Okay, this fourth beast, let's be clear about this. This is not something from Pixar. Okay, this is not Sully, Monsters Incorporated. Okay, this is a nightmare. It's a nightmare. 
Sometimes it's hard to feel that because we're reading and just sort of skipping along and we're used to all sorts of special effects and we just get dull to these images, but not for Daniel. Okay, this was a nightmare. Verse 7, it had great iron teeth, devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. He adds in verse 19, it had claws of bronze. Verse 7, it was exceedingly strong. It has ten horns on its head. As Daniel watches, a little horn comes up from among them, destroys three other horns. It's got eyes like the eyes of a man, verse 8, and a mouth speaking great things. The fact that Daniel mentions first that it's got iron teeth, iron, iron teeth, recalls Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. Remember I said they were parallel? Where the fourth kingdom is symbolized as a statue with legs and feet of iron. Now notice this. Notice this. In the book of Daniel, unlike the first three kings and kingdoms, the fourth kingdom is never named. Never named. Now, many people assume that it must represent Rome. Why? Well, because Rome surpassed all the kingdoms that were before it in power and longevity, and obviously Rome was the next empire to take over the world after the Greeks. Okay, but here's what we have to remember. This is what I'm going to argue. If Daniel wanted us to interpret the fourth beast strictly as Rome, he would have said so. Just like he does for the first three kingdoms. So why does God not call his shot by name on Rome? Maybe it was because as God looked into the future, um, it just got a little fuzzy. (laughs) You know, it's so far out. (laughs) I see iron. I don't see a name. Do you see a name? No, I don't see a name. Oh, hey, Daniel, it's iron, but but we didn't get a name. (laughs) No, (laughs) of course not, okay? I think the reason Daniel never names the fourth beast or kingdom is because the fourth beast or kingdom functions as a type or pattern of all the kingdoms ruling the world from the rise of the Roman Empire to the end of human history. Why do I say that? Two reasons, okay? First, we'll look more at this next Sunday. After the fourth beast is destroyed, the kingdom of God is immediately consummated. No delay, okay? And the simple fact I think this is obvious, that Jesus didn't return when the barbarian hordes invaded Rome in the fifth century suggests that the fourth beast has to resemble more than just the Roman Empire. Which is why Daniel gives it so much more attention than all the other beasts. Okay? Second, why does he not name this fourth kingdom or beast? Well, when we get to chapter 8, preview of coming attractions, Daniel has another vision that's focused on just the third kingdom, which was what? The kingdom of Greece. He says as much. And that vision about the third kingdom, Daniel sees a little horn growing out of the third kingdom that he describes in chapter 8 in almost identical terms to the little horn growing out of the fourth kingdom that we just read about in Daniel 7. Why does he speak of them in nearly identical terms? Well, I would argue that that suggests that while both beasts may point to a particular kingdom or empire, 
they're also examples of a larger pattern. Larger pattern. When you see parallels, you should think patterns, symbolic writing, okay? A larger pattern that we should expect to see in the rulers and kingdoms of this world over and over and over again until the end of history. Okay, that's what the fourth beast is. It's, it's a pattern. It might refer to Rome, but it, it can't be limited to Rome. It doesn't say it's limited to Rome. You know, and when, and when he sees, let me, let me just try to clear this up. When Daniel sees ten horns on the fourth beast, and he describes them as ten kings in verse 24, he's not referring to ten particular people. Okay, what's ten? It's a symbolic number. You know, it's like the number seven in Revelation. It's symbolic. And I think it refers to all the rulers and kingdoms from the rise of Rome to the return of Christ. Okay, that's what I'm arguing. Now, let's focus on this little horn from the fourth beast. Okay? I want you to remember that the main point here is that all the kingdoms of this world are subject to the sovereign authority of God. That's what Daniel's trying to help us see, okay? So let's focus on this little horn emerging from the fourth beast, this fourth kingdom. Look at verse 25, Daniel 7, 25. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. Now, what in the world, Williams, is going on here, okay? Well, I would argue that what we see here, church, is more than an act of physical aggression, okay? This is an act of spiritual defiance. Spiritual defiance. Instead of submitting to God's word, this little horn, king, he speaks his own word, defining for himself and all who will listen what he says is true and right. So he defies the glory of God. Defies the glory of God. He aims to, quote, wear out or prevail over the people of God. Though God has said, Daniel 2.21, that he is the one who changes times and seasons. Daniel chapter 2. What does this little horn try to do? Change the times and the law. What's he doing? He is claiming the absolute sovereignty that rightfully belongs to God himself. That's what he's doing. It's spiritual defiance, okay? So how does God respond? How does God respond? And this is where this, this starts to get really practical for us. How does God respond? Surely, he immediately and decisively judges such an evil, arrogant pretender. Especially since he's oppressing, harming, and violating God's people. Surely God would do that. You want to play that game? You change times and seasons? Uh-uh. Done. That's my version of playing God. Done. <laughs> Gone. Well, look at verse 25. The people of God, they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Say, what? Given into his hand? Are, are you telling me that God allows his people to be persecuted? Are you telling me that it's ultimately the will of God 
that we're sitting here in Babylon under the thumb of a king who doesn't fear God? Are, are you telling me that it's the will of God that Christians continue to be martyred for their faith? Are you, are you telling me it's the will of God that we live in a culture that's increasingly hostile to biblical morality? Okay, where coworkers think you're weird if you're still a virgin. Is it the will of God that, that I'm discriminated against because of the way I, I talk or the color of my skin? Or that my friend refused to speak to me after I challenged them to, to repent of a pattern of sin in their life? Are, are you saying, Daniel, that God actually allows oppression in all those forms and a thousand more to persist? Yes. Yes. Why? Well, church, the answer is that in the kingdom of God, there is something of greater worth than our personal comfort. James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 1 Peter 1, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christian, I'm here to tell you that the suffering you experience at the hands of sinful men and evil rulers and wicked kingdoms is not random. It's not random. It's not an accident, okay? The oppression in your life in a way that we cannot fully understand is ordained and controlled by the mysterious providence of a sovereign God who says to that oppressor, thus far you may come and no farther. The limits of oppression are set by him. Your enemies are not ultimately in charge. Now right now, it feels like that. Right? It feels like that. But their dominion isn't going to last. It's not going to last. Their, their dominion is merely for what? A time, times, and half a time. What's the point? Three and a half is not seven. It's not a number of completion. It's a number cut short. Our suffering is not eternal. It's not eternal. First Peter 5. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the point. How do we know that, church? How do we know that as followers of Christ, we're not going to be overcome 
by all the physical and spiritual forces of evil that oppose us in this world. And enmity, by the way, that if you're following the progression of beast, obviously goes from bad to worse. Okay? Maybe, maybe you watch the news and you see people and kingdoms opposed to God and his word. And you think, this looks like it's going from bad to worse. We know what God says? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Don't be surprised. Okay, so, so how do we know that there's hope in a world where all manner of mouths speak and write and post and tweet great things against the word of God and the people of God? How do we know that? Well, verses 9 to 12 give us the answer. Okay, point one Every kingdom in this world is subject to the sovereign authority of God. Point two, every kingdom in this world is subject to the righteous judgment of God. Subject to the sovereign authority of God, subject to the righteous judgment of God. Look at verse nine. This point is shorter than the first one. Look at verse nine. Oh, this is good news. And as I looked, Daniel says, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Okay, notice the contrast here. This this is amazing. The sea is raging. The beasts are what? Rising up. Raging sea, beast rising up. Ancient of Days. Sits down. On whose seat? His seat. His seat. The beasts are powerful. The beasts are terrifying. But you know what they're not doing, church? They're not sitting on a throne. They're not sitting on a throne. He is. He is. His, his what? His clothing was white as snow. Speaks of his purity. The hair of his head was like pure wool. It speaks of his eternity. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Fire issues out from his throne. That that represents the presence of God and the the judgment of God. A thousand, thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Why? Because he is infinitely worthy and supreme in power. That's why. Verse 10, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. What's that? What's the same courtroom we see in Revelation 20, where John says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. From the judgment of God, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. It's not less real than his love, by the way. 
It's, it's, it's what? It's an expression of his love. For, for it's neither right nor loving for a holy God to turn a blind eye to evil and sin. It's not. Neither the sin around us nor the sin within us. Hebrews 10 verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Living God. If you look at verse 11, this little horn is speaking great words, words of opposition, words of defiance against the the word of God and the people of God and the glory of God, and then all at once, he's gone. Silence. The beast is killed, its body's destroyed, given over to be burned with fire. What does that teach us, friends? It teaches us that the evil kings and kingdoms in this world don't just fade away, okay? What we can expect is they're gonna keep defying the Lord until they are summoned before the throne of God's righteous judgment and condemned to eternal damnation on account of their wickedness. That's what you can expect. Okay, the enemies of God who oppress his glory and oppress his people will be held accountable. No one escapes. No kingdom escapes. No ruler escapes. No person escapes. Every kingdom, every person in this world will be held accountable to the righteous judgment of God. And that, that is both a tremendous comfort and a sobering warning. Tremendous comfort and sobering sobering warning. What do I mean it's a warning? Well, it means that hell is a real place. It's not an invention of Steven Spielberg. And it is the appointed end of all who chase after the gods of this world and refuse to submit to the authority of King Jesus. And I fear, friends, that some of you who are listening to me, that when you die in a blinding flash, you're going to realize that everything you resisted thinking about while you lived here was all true. And at that point, it's going to be too late. And you will be staring at nothing but an eternity of the holy judgment of God. And so I plead with you repent and flee to Christ. Repent flee to Christ, okay? His shed blood is sufficient to atone for all your iniquity. His 
perfect righteousness is sufficient for you to be welcomed before the throne of God, okay? Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to cleanse you. Surrender now to his reign. Submit to his rule. Receive him as your king so that today can be a day of salvation. It's a word of warning. But it's also a word of comfort, okay? It's a word of comfort, right? The, the fact that, that every king and kingdom in this world isn't just subject to the authority of God, but will one day answer to the judgment of God. That's tremendously comforting. If right now you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, and you're trying to figure out how in the world do I do life in an evil world where I feel like an exile, why do I say that's comforting? Well, it's because, friend, the evil around you, the dominion you see around you, know this, it is not gonna last. It's not gonna last, okay? M many of you are gonna have opportunities this week to fight against what is evil and fight for what is good in your workplace, in your family, in your own heart for that matter, and knowing, listen, knowing that in the end, every one of God's enemies will be judged and destroyed can bring a tremendous freedom in the battle. Freedom in the battle, why do I say that? Well, because it delivers us from the pressure to have to win every battle against the forces of evil in this life. If you're laboring under that pressure, I have to find a way to win every single battle against every form of evil in me, in my family, in the world around me, Good luck, <laughs> okay? You can't do that. Now, should we work to pass laws that protect the church from persecution and uphold the freedom of religion? Yes, yes. Should we, should we actively fight against social and cultural racism and work to see the life of every unborn child protected no matter the situation? Yes. But, church, let's do all that with a humility that comes from knowing we can't, we, keyword, we can't ultimately rid the world of evil. And the patient confidence that comes from knowing one day he will. Does that make sense? Knowing every king and kingdom will be held accountable to the judgment of God gives us a humility in the face of enduring evil for we know it's never going away till he comes back. And it gives us a patient confidence that one day God is gonna take care of business. It's not ultimately our job to hold the beastly kingdoms and oppressive people of this world to account. God will judge your enemies. God will repay our, our enemies. And may that promise deliver you, friend, from the poison of bitterness against those who oppress you, those who sin against you. It's not your job to punish them by holding them at arm's length in your heart or retaliating against them in some way, okay? In the end, everyone who is oppressing the people of God will answer to the judgment of God. He's a righteous judge. He doesn't let the guilty go unpunished. Don't try to do his job for him. Don't do it. He does all things well. 
And in the end, no force of evil, physical or spiritual, is going to be allowed to stand against him or his people. The ancient of days is firmly in control. Firmly in control. What's the big idea? Daniel 7. In the end, we're going to get there next week, Jesus wins. If you're found in Christ, then you win too. But the stage for that is set in the first half of the chapter. Every kingdom in this world is presently subject to the authority of God. And every king and kingdom in this world will one day answer to the judgment of God. We'll look at this again next Sunday, but for now, church, I want us to pray. And then I want us to respond before we share communion by singing a song called Joy to the World. Now, you may be thinking, Williams, this is a heavy message. Joy to the world goes with Santa. You're weird. (laughs) I don't think I'm weird. Why? Because what does the song Joy to the World remind us of, friends? He rules the world. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove. He rules the world. Let's thank him for that. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you have not stayed silent when it comes to speaking of the future. And Lord, as we dive into the second half of the book of Daniel, I pray, Father, that you would help us to be willing to wrestle with these symbols, to work to understand your word, because you've given it to us. And you're our Father, and you know what we need. And Lord, I I thank you for the comfort that is found in knowing that right now this week, everything around us is subject to your authority. Oh Lord, would that bring us comfort this week as a church. And Lord, I, I thank you for the freedom that we find in knowing that one day, every oppressor will answer to you. Lord, for all who right now in this room have yet to submit their heart and their life to you. I pray, Jesus, that right now you would come upon them by your Holy Spirit and regenerate their heart. I pray you would make them alive, that you would help them to see and flee to Christ, that on the day of judgment, they might have a great confidence. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We thank you that in your birth, we are assured that you indeed rule this world. And you're not going to stop. Amen. Let's stand and sing.